turn it around, and uh, lots of people are doing their very best to turn it around on this planet, and uh, quite a few of them, perhaps more than uh, half, tend to be of the feminine variety, talking about women, eco-warriors, uh, actually eco-Amazons, Amazons, in the words of the author of a book with that name. Dorka Keen is joining me now. Dorka is an artist, an activist, art maven, really, uh, and author of this new book in which she uh, profiles 20 women. It must have been hard to narrow it down to 20, uh, and their incredible work, what they're doing to lead the way towards creating a sustainable future. She took a global view, so there's people from outside of this country as well, I do believe. Haven't seen the book yet, but uh, looking forward to doing that, and uh, we'll be at a book signing tomorrow night. So, Dorka, welcome to the Green Front. Hi, Betsy. Thanks so much for having me on the show. First of all, congratulations. Thank you so much. It's been uh, a lot of fun doing this project, and actually Eco Amazon's 20 Women Who Are Transforming the World is about 20 American women environmental leaders. Oh, it is. Um, okay. I really wanted to focus on women in the United States um, because of our – there's a sense that the history of the environmental movement here in this country is very – uh, male-dominated, and actually there's an incredible group of women who are doing uh, really uh, far-ranging, big thinking around the big issues that we have to deal with for our, to ensure a sustainable future. And uh, even just looking at the United States, I'm sure it was difficult to narrow it down to 20 women who have a global perspective. I guess that's the uh, appropriate adjective here. They absolutely do have a global perspective, and it was interesting. In some areas, it was very difficult to narrow it down, certainly in the areas of environmental justice, but in areas like green business, uh, it, it was actually difficult to find uh, uh, women business leaders. So I think that there's lots of, you know, just as an, uh, you know, across the board um, where women uh, are known to exist in sort of the educational um, field, et cetera, there's lots of women, but in sort of areas like business, there aren't, and science, there aren't a lot of women, but they're, they're definitely coming up through the ranks and have, I think, sort of a different perspective on looking at these issues that may or may not be better or certainly are important um, to include in the conversation. And I know as an artist, as a women's activist, and as an environmentalist and journalist, I can see where this book came out of you with all those interests put together. Was it one moment? Was it kind of an eco-epiphany that made you decide to do this book, or was it just a, sort of a natural outcome of your, your work over the years? Well, I think it's both, but really what inspired me or who inspired me to write the book was one of the women in the book, Judy Bonds, who is self-described as a redneck uh, Appalachian woman from West Virginia who has been leading the charge against mountaintop removal. And I saw her speak at an environmental conference, and by the time she was done talking about the impact that mountaintop removal had on her family and on her community and on the region and on the land, I was moved to tears. And I was so inspired by her, and I thought, who, who are the other women out there who are doing this incredible work, and how come I don't know who she is? And the tragedy of, of, this, of her, actually, is that two months before the book went to press, she actually died of an environmentally-related cancer. Um, so in a way, this book is, an, is you know, honoring her dedication to her and you would have heard of her if you listened to eco talk back when it was on air america because i interviewed her had the pleasure to uh five six years ago several times she was one of my sheroes so you you're right really is most inspirational most inspirational and 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 that's part of the problem is it not that um those who are working so hard on the environmental front lines are not celebrated like our sports athletes uh you know those kinds of uh, heroes to most americans more much more familiar are and that's part of the reason we're in this mess is that, I guess, culturally as Americans, we just don't 
really still get, you know, what's at stake and really um, value and support those who are, you know, selflessly working for the public greater good on the uh, green front. And I also think a lot of it is people feel overwhelmed. And one of the reasons I wrote this book is to show that you don't have to be, uh, you know, super knowledgeable about an issue. What it really takes is just to look around and noticing that there's a problem and then starting to do something about it. And it almost doesn't matter what you choose to focus on, but just to get involved with an issue that's important to you and, and there and start connecting with other people, and that's how you make a difference. And I think that's what all these women exemplify. Of course, some of them, like Sylvia Earle, the oceanographer, or Dr. Theo Colburn, you know, they are experts in their fields, but there are a lot of women in the book who are housewives, who were just women who noticed that their children were sick, that their family was sick, and, and started looking into it intuitively knowing that there was something wrong. Like Lois Gibbs. Exactly, and, and Lois Gibbs was one of the early housewives who noticed that there was something deeply, deeply wrong in her neighborhood. And what's amazing about her and so many of these other women is that while she started out just trying to help her family and her community to get away from Love Canal, she's the reason why we have Superfund legislation. So here's somebody who really started out with you know, her own personal mission, and it transcended into a national piece of legislation that's had tremendous impact. And now she's gone on to start an organization where she's helping women and uh, individuals and organizations all over the country fight the same issues that she had to fight when she started at Love Canal. And you mentioned the environmental justice uh, category, or as Van Jones would say, the environmental injustice category. Uh, pretty easy probably to come up with uh, Majora Carter to profile. Yes, and you know, the out. reason that, you know, there's so many great women in the environmental justice movement, but I picked Majora Carter because she really came up with, grant, with green jobs and a green job training program before Van Jones had even thought of green jobs. So, again, here she is, a woman who was doing the work way before it became mainstream and struggled to get funding. I mean, funders didn't really understand what she was talking about, and it wasn't until it became mainstream with people like Van Jones that they finally got it. Right, and I am proud to say I interviewed uh, Van Jones back in uh, 2005. It was World and World United Nations World Environment Day, and I was so impressed by him, and at that point he was causing, calling his movement uh, green jobs, not jails. I don't know if you remember that. And I said, absolutely. How about something more positive, like green collar jobs? And I think he liked that and ran with it. It, it. it caught on. Yeah, absolutely. And he's a huge fan of Majoris too. And, and we all are. Gone on, you know, to become this incredible eco entrepreneur. Really looking at, at, you know, not just the basic green jobs that we think of, solar or uh, brownfield remediation, but really how do we bring green jobs, you know, into large communities like Detroit. Uh, so it's, she's really grown, too. And, and so are green jobs. I mean, as a, as a sector, the fastest-growing job sector, green jobs. And uh, as someone wrote on climateprogress.org yesterday, probably Joseph Rome, the guy who runs it, uh, in uh, pretty soon it's going to be only green jobs left at the rate we're going. You know, those are the ones that we absolutely need. The sooner we realize that and create more of them and put more unemployed people to work, uh, disadvantaged and otherwise, the faster we will make the transition to a more sustainable future. I completely agree with you, though. I still think there's this disconnect with green jobs and low-income communities. For example, I have in the book Vivian Chang, who was the head of the Asian Pacific Environmental Network, and really she works with uh, disenfranchised Asian communities and a lot of 
communities of colors are not you know, accessing some of these green job opportunities. Some of them don't have the technical skills to do solar. And so I think it's really looking at green jobs in a broader perspective, um, except for example, urban agriculture um, and, and bringing low-income people and people who may not have technical skills into the green job market. And I'm finding still sort of a lack of those kind of programs and a lack of funding directed at those communities. And I'll um, I'll say this as I do from time to time. The other place where there's a gap is just green media support for that. You know how many millions of dollars go into clean tech, uh, and yet we need to educate our population. We need to connect the dots. We need to inform and inspire people on mass faster. And we can't do that if that's not something that you know exists independently. And Lord knows. Um, I've been trying to break through the mainstream media with a green talk show, and there is none, and they won't let it happen. They don't think it can be popular or profitable, and I think that's part of the reason we're in this mess is people don't quite realize, you know, A, what's at stake, and B, what we can do about it, how we can pretty quickly go from being part of the problem to at least a piece of the solution. Absolutely, I agree, and that's one of the reasons why I wrote this book, because I found that there, were, there was no literature out there about women in the movement. And that's mm-hmm. been such an incredibly important part of the movement. And also the way they come at problem solving is somewhat different. And I think really in this day and age that we need to look at all the different ways to solve these problems. And it's just funny, you know, women on the whole are, you know, they're more intuitive, they're more collaborative, they tend to be better listeners. And those are things now in the corporate world that, that you know, uh, corporate leaders are realizing are the ways to have more effective businesses. So sort of this feminine way of leading and problem solving is now becoming mainstream. So we need more women at the top of the corporate ladder and also the top of countries. Uh, if we had more women running countries, we might not have so many wars that we can't figure out why we're involved in, et cetera. Absolutely. But, and, you know, there's all this new research that shows that uh, when there are women in senior positions in corporations, the, the corporations actually raise money more quickly and are, are more successful. And Congress so. as well. I'm sure we, <laughs> we could agree on that, too. I know you're active in Emerge trying to get more young women to go into politics. Absolutely. Young and older women. I think that women who, you know, who have their children and who are now looking for their, you know, next step in life, I think it's the perfect opportunity for them to go into politics. And they actually have experiences either raising families or running businesses or working in nonprofits um, that really are useful uh, in, in the political arena. One of the women you profiled who perhaps many outside the environmental movement might not be aware of and certainly should be is Janine Benyus. Oh, she's amazing. Janine Benyus um, basically coined the term biomimicry, which, as, I'm, as you know, is, the, um, is looking at nature for solutions and particularly design solutions. You know, how do we build cities? How do we build buildings? How do we build solar panels um, that are sustainable? And it was so exciting to spend time with her. And one of the things that she was working on at that time was looking at you know, solar panels right now are, are very, the way they're built are, are not sustainable. And she was looking at the way a leaf photosynthesizes and thinking, well, what if we created actually nanotechnology where we could have paint on buildings that was, you know, like a solar panel or paint on cars or, you know, and so actually looking at the leaf as a technology and saying this is how we can do it rather than actually having to, you know, build this huge, you know, panel. <laughs> so she's, she's super exciting. <laughs> and, and she's worked, I'm sure, with uh, Paul Hawken and Hunter Lovins, among others, who have, you know, talked about natural capitalism, talked about studying nature to see what works brilliantly and beautifully and what, we, what lessons are there for us. 
actually she's um, developing the company to develop these new very thin solar panels with Paul. And Hunter is also in the book, and, uh, you know, she is just leading the charge on looking at renewable energies. So she's leading the charge on her, on, on her horse. On her horse, her. absolutely. <laughs> Famous cowboy I, that, I mean, that was that was what was so fun about this book was actually being able to go out and spend time with these women where they work, and I was able to go out and see, go to Janine Benias where she works uh, in Montana and going to visit uh, Hunter on her ranch and seeing how these women sustain themselves. I mean, because they're on the road so often, they're traveling, they're speaking, but they all have a place that they come back to. And for most of them, uh, it is, they do, you know, being in nature is just critically important. And I think that really that's one of the things that I, I got out of this book was that each one of them had an experience as a child in nature that deeply affected them and that influenced their future work. And so oh, I think as you... Yeah, and so I think as we look to the future, it is just so important that we provide opportunities for everyone, but particularly youth, to be in nature. It has such a profound impact on us. Um, Otherwise, we see nature deficit disorder. Exactly. And another woman that I have in the in the book, um, uh, Beth Waitkiss, who is doing the garden project out at the San Quentin prison, Beth is, is working with men who never were in nature as children. And this is their first experience being in nature, working in the garden, learning about permaculture, and it is, having gone out to visit these men and listening to them talk about how they are finally connecting to their feelings, their emotions, and all of this is happening through working in the garden. I mean, the impact is just tremendous. That talks about, you know, big, brawny, tough mean-looking men being brought to tears because of this incredible work. And I'm so glad you profiled people like Beth who are not so well-known, you know, outside the uh, immediate Bay Area, perhaps, uh, because there are so many women. And I'm proud to say I've interviewed at least uh, half, probably more, of the women profiled in your book over the years. Uh, so many great people who deserve recognition. And um, are you going to do part two, since you can only do 20? Well, you know what I'd really like to do is I would like to, and I'm going to start doing this both on the on the Eco Amazon's website, which is ecoamazon.com, and on our Facebook page, is to start asking other people to tell their stories of women in their lives that have impacted them in the environmental movement, so that we can start gathering stories from all over the country about all these incredible women who are doing great work who are going unrecognized. And then hopefully maybe compiling that or doing a series of articles. I've been talking to Huffington Post about that. That includes some of these women that other, other people are, are, are bringing to the forefront. Great work. Great idea. That would be great work. And uh, this work is sometimes thankless. Sometimes it doesn't pay. But it's so rewarding because we know it matters and we know that it's going to be a, you know increasingly important issue going forward. Uh, it already is to many people, but it, it still hasn't really caught on to mainstream America. It's still not in the zeitgeist, partly because people are so worried about finances, about jobs, about you know just getting through the day. We're so uber busy. Um, how do you hope this book will help, or do you have any notion that it might um, break through? You know the 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 greens and the non-greens. It seems like it, we're still sort of siloed in a way. And yes, the choir is growing, but not fast enough. I'm sure you agree. One of the women in the book, Diane Wilson, who is a shrimper uh, from Texas who has been leading the charge against the chemical companies down there, you know, she said when she started, she didn't know what she was getting into, but she's realized that she has never been more happy or felt more fulfilled in her life, and she really struggled and fought. So 
and what Annie Leonard, another woman in the book from the story of stuff says, mm-hmm. is that really what makes us happy is obviously not buying things, it's not consuming, but it's coming together over an issue that's bigger than ourselves. And I think that's what's happening in this country and around the world around the environmental issues, is that people are starting to come together on issues that are important to them, food, pesticides, clean water, whatever it is. And they're coming together and they're really finding that they're happier and they're feeling more satisfied and that they're finding community. And so I think it's slowly happening. These communities are growing and growing and growing and people are getting more connected. So I do have hope that the movement is growing and that we are going to be able to, you know, impact and create a sustainable future. Well, you know who's really helping is Mother Nature because she's kind of screaming at us lately. And if anyone's paying attention, uh, we ought to be concerned and respond. And you just mentioned a couple more of my sheroes who have been on the program, Annie Leonard and Diane Wilson. <laughs> amazing, amazing courage and such a character. Uh, also, Alice Waters is in your book. Yes. And Alice is just, you know, it's so funny. Most of the time when I ask people to name one person in the book, they go blank. Um, and I say, okay, well, think about food. Think about organics. And they can come up with Alice. <laughs> So Alice is sort of, I would say, the, the, biggest, the biggest name in the book and obviously has had a tremendous impact on you know, organic foods, farmers markets, um, and schools. And I think what yeah. she's doing right now is so excited, exciting as far as you know, pushing to have a national lunch program, which is based on local organic foods. And you know, the Berkeley School District has embodied this, and it's, Edible it's amazing. You know, they're, they've got milk that's, you know, made that comes from local cows. You know, all their vegetables are local. They actually have a salad bar, which, you know, is unheard of in most schools. Um, all the food radical, is... Radical, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's super radical stuff. And, and obviously we're starting, you know, they're making connections between food and ADD. Um, so... You know, just what's happening in Berkeley is going to be a model, hopefully, for the rest of the country, and hopefully it will be a national policy around, you know, providing local organic foods for lunch. So she's Absolutely, just, you know, and you have, a forward, you have a forward from, of course, Julia Butterfly Hill, because she would have to be in there somewhere. The woman who <laughs> sat in a tree for about two years uh, to bring attention to it, uh, someone we all look up to, literally and figuratively, or we did when she was up there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And Julia was a great uh, supporter from the very beginning. I've known her for a long time, and when I called her up to write the foreword, she was, you know, jumped right in. Well, someone I would recommend for part two uh, is, uh, as we speak, solo rowing across the Indian Ocean, Roz Savage, my uh, friend. And uh, I think she's at the top of my list because when I have a rough day, and we all do, and fighting this battle can sometimes feel thankless and like we're not making enough, nearly enough progress, uh, based on the you know output of energy, time expenses, et cetera, I think about what she's doing, and this is her third solo you know ocean cross after conquering the Pacific and the Atlantic, and I hear now she wants to do the North Atlantic next, but right now she's uh, on the Atlantic Ocean, I'm sorry, the Indian Ocean, if anyone would like to follow her incredible journey, it's uh, rozsavage.com, R-O-Z. I'm sure you're aware of her eco-exploits, and even though she's not as well-known as some of the women in your book, I think she will be pretty soon because uh, that's pretty amazing stuff. And, it, you know, it's such a, it must be such a spiritual experience for her to be doing this. And I think that's another thing that all the women in the book spoke about was, you know, whether they were really religious or not, really for them being in nature was this divine experience. It was a healing experience. 
um, and it sustains them. And I think that's really the more we can get people in nature, the more they're going to care about it. And that's what Sylvia Early, oceanographer, says. You know, if people don't go into the ocean and see it, they don't care about it because they just don't know. And I think, you know, for most people, most, you know, have not had the opportunity to really be in nature so that we need to keep providing those opportunities. And here we are, you know, facing state budget deficits, you know, they're closing parks, cutting, uh, you know, increasing uh, the price to go to parks, you know, so it's becoming out of the reach of most people to go vacation in places like Yellowstone. And it's just so important that we keep that opportunity open for people. Not to mention, uh, this is another issue, but kind of related, you know, just when kids need PE more than ever, especially kids with ADD, that blood flow increase really helps their, you know, academic performance. They're cutting PE programs, and I'm sure you have a lot to say about how art programs should not be cut, but we're just about out of time, Dorka. I thank you for well, your great work, and I look forward to the Thank you, and I hope this book, you know, really serves as inspiration for other people to get involved, and that's what's the whole idea for the book. It's not just for women and for girls, but it's for everyone to read these incredible stories and, and get inspired and get out there and, and do something and so create, it's, a, create it's a sustainable future. And it's photographed beautifully as well. Thank you so much. And uh, continue on with your great work. I will see you soon at a book signing in San Francisco and uh, give you a congratulations hug because I have uh, been hearing about this book uh, in the um, pregnancy phase, in the incubation <laughs> stage for, what has it been, uh, two years? Probably more. Been two years. I've been yeah. aware of it. And, and don't feel bad, because I'm on year five, and I'm uh, just about to uh, go finish my book. So I'll let you know when that's finished as well. Yes, uh, thanks called, so much, and I'm looking forward to seeing you. It's called As the Glaciers Melt. Thank you so much, and I really appreciate the work and the focus on women who so deserve it and so many more behind them. That does it for this edition of The Green Front. I'm your host, Betsy Rosenberg. I hope you've enjoyed this version of the program. If you um, joined us partway through or you'd like to go back and listen to the interviews in its entirety or tell your friends about it, you can find these shows archived in two places. One, the Progressive Radio Network and also on my website, which is thegreenfront.com. That does it for this edition. See you next time. In the meantime, have a great, green, clean week. <laughs>